Blog Talk Radio. This is Marty Oakley, and of course, this is True Squad Radio's edition of Guardianship Abuse. And we are going to have Stuart Resmer this evening, and he's going to be talking about the case of Mary Sudavar. And this is out in New Jersey. Stuart will be joining us uh, long about uh, 20 after. Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk about this week before Stuart comes on is um, I've been contacting, of course, Senators. Uh, representatives in various states, and I'm hoping to hear back still from three senators and representatives in Iowa that Randy Feenstra had recommended, and hopefully I can get them on. One of the things I took real exception to was initially Senator Feenstra had asked me to contact um, uh, Representative Alonz there in Iowa. He's up in the south or northwest corner of Iowa representative there and told him what I was doing and that we would like to talk to him and get his views on what the laws were in the state of Iowa regarding guardianship abuse. And I got an email back from him that said he was sorry he couldn't do the show that particular evening because he was busy working with a retired Navy admiral who They were trying to set up the USS Iowa as a museum for all Americans to enjoy. And that email kind of rankled me because it felt like it was an underhanded slight, and I think I'm right about that. So eventually I wrote Representative Alonz back and asked him if the enjoyment of all Americans would include those being held prisoners uh, as prisoners under these predatory guardianships, or were they excluded from enjoying the USS Iowa as a museum, and I personally don't see much sense in building monuments um, to warships uh, where so many people died. I I just have a problem with that. But um, this week also, um, uh, Lou Ann Anderson, that we've had on the show previously, um, sent in a great article, and we posted it on the PBJ Gazette, and it's it, the article is entitled Connecticut Estate Case Exposes Inheritance Rights Realities. And um, she says in her article, people believe they have the right to determine their final asset b- distribution. The legal industry perpetually promotes proper estate planning as a vehicle to ensure wishes are honored. Greed and self-interest, however, can derail even the most well-prepared plans of today's probate system. And it is increasingly home to such actions. The estate of Josephine Smorin, an elderly Connecticut woman with expressly clear wishes, exposes the harsh reality of American property rights and the rights of inheritance. And before I go on with her article, this is one of the things I, I just can't stress enough. Um, 
in, in these situations. This is not simply trying to take care of people or respecting their wishes or making them safe. This is about disinheriting heirs. This is about the theft of estates and your property rights, which you think are guaranteed under the Constitution when you get into these probate courts, apparently are non-existent. And we have many, many cases of probate judges discarding wills, trusts, any kind of legal instrument that uh, someone has used in estate planning to make sure that their assets are distributed or cared for in the manner that they choose. And so this is, I think this was such an important article. And she says that Smoron believed that her longtime caretaker, Sam Manzo's inheritance of her 80-acre estate, including farm and cows, valued at more than $1 million. Recognizing local interest in developing her property, Smorin was adamant that churches previously involved in a dispute over her brother's estate have no claim to her estate. These wishes were clearly expressed in the 1996 will in an updated 2004 version. Here again is something else I, I know nobody likes to talk about. Um, but the thing is, is these churches. Um, we Here where I live in central Minnesota, the Catholic Church is the church de jour for the most part. And there is a steady pattern of the priests as as couples or a surviving um, a member of a you know of a marriage uh, ages, and they have these massive farms. I mean, some of these farms out here are three and four thousand acres. They're, they're just worth. And of course, it's prime agricultural land. Um, the priests start showing up every week and visiting because he cares so much about them. And then eventually the family finds out that the priest has coerced the elderly father or mother or both parents into leaving the church all the property. And these things, for some reason, are held up in court, even though a previous will existed. Um, this is done. Usually the family doesn't know about it until the deed is done. The, the parent or parents have passed on and suddenly the church lays claim to their property. Uh, one of the things they do too, is, is especially in the Catholic religion, is they offer them basically what's a form of what they call indulgences where you can pay to pray yourself up out of a uh, lower level of hell. I don't know who believes this stuff, but apparently a lot of people do. And... Um, uh, confronting the priest here about this situation, I asked him if he actually had the power to perform such a miracle, and he was actually a holy man. Why wasn't he doing it for free? And he became quite insulted. But anyway, um, so this is just you know one of the things that you have to watch for. Um, another um, of my friends here in St. Cloud, whose father passed away recently, had belonged to a raging evangelical church. And the church, upon his death, immediately came after the estate, claiming that he had promised them. They thought the man had millions and millions of dollars. He didn't. But they thought that he did and that they were going to get all this money. Well, it turns out the, the estate was sizable, but not millions and millions worth. And the church tried to sue uh, the children 
for at least 50% of the estate. And um, how that's going to turn out, I don't know. But this is another aspect of all of this that a lot of people don't like to talk about, don't like to um, even allude to the fact that this could possibly happen because, of course, they think their church is the highway to heaven. And um, it never occurs to them that in too many cases, not all, but too many cases, that church is, is a money mill. And uh, these people are just like the rest of these predators out there. There is no level too low. There's no end to the lengths they will go to to enrich themselves. And, and that's another thing, too, for those of you listening. What I'm trying to figure out is this. If many of these people who find themselves imprisoned in these uh, so-called care facilities and medicated to the point of dysfunctionality, um, many of them belong to churches. Where where are their priests? Where are their pastors? Where are their ministers? Uh, why aren't they intervening on behalf of that victim? Why aren't they showing up in court? You you know, why aren't they putting their two cents worth in? And then somebody answered that question for me. It's because they are all 501c3 corporations, which is what allows them their tax-exempt status. They are basically employees of the state at that point. So um, I I just, uh, you know, there's there's just too much in this. There's too many predators out there. There are too many people uh, that, that see these elderly people uh, as simply a cash cow. And we see these predatory guardians showing up all over the place. We, we see people imprisoned. And, and this is what it is. It's imprisonment. This is not just simply uh, someone stepping in who thought they could help this elderly person. These are actually predators. This is how they make their living. This is what they do. And none of them could do any of it without the cooperation of that probate judge. And I'm, I'm trying to find out from uh, letters I have sent to several legislators uh, in various states, how it is a probate judge can discard legal instruments. And so far, as near as I can tell, it's because, as we have discussed before, once you are under guardianship, you become a ward of the state. And as such, you have no rights. You are chattel property. And they have decided, and the state courts have upheld, that the probate judge can throw aside any pre-planned documents, any instruments regarding um, legal issues in inheritance or anything else, can totally disinherit the heirs at will. And then, of course, the attorneys step in and the doctors step in and the fake care facility steps in, and everybody's getting a piece of the pie. My problem with this is I uh, last week somebody had suggested a book called uh, The Sociopath Next Door. I've ordered the book and intend to read it because I think that's what we are dealing with is um, the herd mentality of sociopaths. And these people don't have empathy. They don't have sympathy. They don't have compassion. Uh, they usually are very charming people. They are usually very intellectual people. Um, except for the ones that actually get down to actually doing serial killing. Um, but these, these are people that if you met them on the street, you would not, you would not, um, you would not know that uh, they lack the feelings that you have. And it is these people 
It is these people who step into these guardianship cases. And it is these people who victimize the elderly, those that are disabled. And they can do it because they don't have any feelings. They can do it because there's nobody there to stop them. And we have been more or less inculcated into this culture of greed, anything for a buck, even if it means I kill you, as long as I make money. Uh, it doesn't make any difference what I do to you. And this is what we're having to, to witness here in these cases. Um, this thing about greed, I, I can't stress that enough. I, I just can't stress it enough. Uh, most of us and most of you listening uh, would not think of harming another person just so you could drive a Mercedes. But these people that show up in these courts um, and immediately isolate the victim from their family, start pressing charges against family members that have no foundation or, or you know, premise. Um, these people just absolutely don't care. They don't care. And so I think what we need to do is start identifying them. And when we have done so many times on this show, called them by name. One of the other things I did this last week was wrote a letter to AARP, uh, ARP, you know, that senior citizens insurance company group. Uh, supposedly, they represent 70% of the senior citizens across the country. I don't think their stats are quite that high, uh, especially after the Medicare uh, fiasco during the Bush administration where they messed Medicare up so bad, you know, it was going to save $150 billion. It ended up costing $750 billion. Uh, they lost over 70,000 members over that because they supported that. Everybody knew it was a scam. Well, anyway, I wrote them a letter, and I just asked them why, if they are supposed to be the primo group representing seniors in this country, why are they not stepping up to the plate and speaking out about this issue? And I listed several well-known cases, uh, offered to send them documents and proof of what I was saying, and I got an email back that was anonymous, basically, saying they had no idea what I was talking about. And apparently, I was a conspiracy theorist. And um, this was a situation that might have occurred here and there. And But as far as they knew, it it was just a figment of my imagination, basically, is what they said. So I shot them off another letter, and I listed the GAO reports. And I said, so apparently the folks at the GAO since 2000 um, every year have had the same hallucinations that I have had, correct? And I said, because they're actually citing far more cases than I have. And so I got one of these standard emails I got, like, from the DOJ and different district attorneys and so on, don't contact us again. Uh, this is basically the end of passing the buck. We're not even passing the buck. We're tearing the buck up. And uh, But this is this is how these people operate. And there again, you've got AARP, which is supposed to be this, like I say, this primo group representing the elderly, the senior citizens, the boomers. And what are they doing? Not much of nothing. And they don't want to be informed. They don't want to know about this. They don't want to be told about this. They they want plausible deniability. They want to be able to say, we didn't know. But, of course, um, what's going to happen is I'm probably going to write them again. 
uh, and probably do some articles on the fact that I did contact them and that they basically blew this off. Apparently, if you uh, are under guardianship, you can't buy any of the AARP's insurance policies, and uh, so you're really of no value to them. Uh, these are, are not a uh, is not a group I would recommend to anyone under any circumstances. But anyway, um, going back to Luann's article here, uh, what had happened in this case that she's talking about is that her land had been identified uh, as where they wanted to build some big sports center on it, and so this fellow went into the court and basically just told the judge. Um, that what he wanted to do was take this property, uh, looks like under eminent domain, uh, because they would get a larger tax base, you know, if he put this in there than if they just allowed the farm to transfer to the heirs. And um, so that Manzo, who should have inherited, filed a complaint with Connecticut's Council on Probate Judicial Conduct that resulted in Marcy Mar- Meccarellio, I cannot say that, Meccarellio, uh, being censured for the second time in three years, causing the judge to withdraw his bid for re-election. Well, yippee. Um, this says, but they still say the land contract is still valid, uh, even though the rightful heir is suing to overturn this judge's disregard of Mormon's estate plan and diversion of her assets. And she says Manzo may regain control of the property to which he is legitimately entitled, but this hijacking will cost him money and time that will never be recovered. She says that Smorman took the responsible steps to document her final wishes. Not only did she specify that she wanted Manzo to have her property, but she also specified evidently due to the dispute over her brother's estate, all churches in previous wills are intentionally, not inadvertently, omitted. Well, that ought to set the Catholic Church on its ears. But uh, this is, you know, this is like I say, we just uh, we just keep seeing one case after another. Um, this judge stepping down is a step forward, in my opinion. But the, of course, the, the question I would ask is: Are they simply going to be? Is he simply going to be replaced by another corrupt probate judge? And what about these states? I, I want to know why these states are not reining these judges in. And you can't get a straight answer from them. And when people go to the state court to file a complaint against the probate court, the state court in virtually every instance within 30 seconds says, oh, we uphold the decision of the probate court. They don't even look at the cases. They refuse to look at the cases, and they are actually the courts responsible for what happens in those probate courts because the probate courts, just like family courts, are special courts set up to take a load off the state courts. And But they apparently just aren't bound by any laws as near as, near as I can tell. But uh, the other thing we have to look at, too, is state by state, everybody's state, what are the laws in your state, and where are the loopholes? What are these people using to get by with this stuff, and who put it in there, or who took it out? Who did the facilitating? Uh, because somebody that was a legislator had to go in and make those changes to statute and code in order for these people to be able to get away with this stuff. So who was it that did it? I think it's important to find that out. Um, out in Colorado, I had one lady when I was digging around out there after our um, 
interview with Rudy Bush, who said to me, she said, well, yes, it was done, you know, this thing of uh, anybody over the age of 60, they can pick up at will if they want to until they decide how many assets you got. Uh, she said, yeah, that is true. And I said, well, who who did this? Who did this? And she said, well, the legislator that did that is now dead. I said, I don't care, you know, what he is. And she says, well, you don't want to tarnish his name. He's dead. I said, well, then he shouldn't mind. He's not around anyway. Uh, I said, I'm not trying to tarnish his name. I'm trying to run down who did this. Who did this? So anyway, uh I, of course, never got an answer. <laughs> Surprise. And uh, it, it just, I, I'm telling you, it just goes on. Um, Stuart should should be calling in here in a minute, and we'll get rolling with that. Um, for those of you who um, are not familiar with Stuart's case, it deals with Mary Sudavar, and she's 100 years old, and there is a legal battle, he says, going on before Judge Mary Margaret McVeigh. Uh, this is the New Jersey Passaic County Superior Court, C1, says, 2010, over her best interests, launched by Mary's youngest daughter, Barbara Sudavar, against her three siblings, Mary Ann Sudavar, Merkel, Kathleen Sudavar, Frulix, and Brother Stephen Sudavar. Um, I was reading up on this uh, earlier today, and um, it, it's really quite a sad case. Um, we've got a caller here. Who's on, please? Hi, Stuart. Hi, Stuart. I was just talking about your case, and thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, we, I was telling the, our listeners about Mary Sudavar and the fact that she's 100 years old and this legal battle that's going, been going on, and uh, maybe you could pick it up from there and, and tell our listeners, how did this start? Well, um, I uh, I met Mary about 10 years ago when I first met her uh, her daughter, Barbara. We maintain a bi-coastal relationship. I'm from Los Angeles, and the folks live here in New Jersey. And when I would come out here to New Jersey, uh, you know, a time would come where we would take Mary to church or maybe out to lunch or a movie or something like that. And um, I began to notice that Mary was uh, slowing down a bit. And uh, within a couple of years, you know, it became pretty obvious that the dear heart was 100 years old and uh, she could be expected to move a little bit slower. So uh, I had a conversation one day with her son, Stephen Sudabar. Stephen is a past president of Hoffman LaRoche, uh, drug laboratories, you know, world world renowned Roche. And I said, you know, Stephen, um, your mother's getting a little shaky. I'm concerned about that. Uh, she lives alone, and it seems like maybe uh, you know it'd be a good time to start to figure out if you can get uh, a caregiver in the home. Well, Stephen is a proud man, and uh, you know he didn't really like it. You could tell he was. Uh, you know, he was listening to what I said, but he really didn't want me involved. So, uh, you know, I kind of let that drop until another time when Mary was really shaky. And I turned to my 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 fiancé, Barbara, and I said, look, you know, you guys live with Mary all the time in your lives. I see a different Mary. I see somebody with a different set of eyes. And this began this sort of um, this slide that has resulted in this court case. Um, 
in May of 2009, I came to New Jersey for a visit, and Barbara told me that Mary was in a convalescent facility, Care One is the name of the outfit. And uh, in some ways I thought that was, uh, that was probably a good thing because you don't want to see a 100-year-old woman living by herself. So we went down to Care One, and Mary was in her room, and she didn't look too good. And, uh, you know, I said, hello, Mary, how you doing? And when I touched her, she seemed a little cold, and we put some blankets on her and what have you. And she said, uh, my legs are cold. So I, I reached under her uh, her blankets there, and her feet were cold, both of them. And I thought, well, this isn't good. And Mary had a pretty serious cough that I hadn't heard before. And literally within 15 minutes of getting there, we were in an ambulance taking Mary to the emergency room to Chilton Memorial here in Pumpkin Plains, New Jersey. Um, you know what those ER situations look like, people running around. No, I machine. don't. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, if okay. you've ever been in an ER like I have, uh, you see machines, you see doctors and nurses going about, you see people that are there that have been in accidents or have gotten hurt, and you're just one of the crowd. So uh, they wheeled Mary through, and in a very short while, uh, the relatives began to arrive. Stephen. Uh, his sister, uh, Marianne Sudovar Mirko, her husband, uh, Barbara's sister, Kathleen Sudovar Pruel arrives. And now all the long faces are there. Which really surprised me because although I hadn't been here, Mary never really seemed to me to be at death's door. She was always such an energetic and vivacious and bubbling personality, but here she was taking a turn for the worse. Well, in the next day or two, what we were told was that Mary had a blockage in her arteries going to her legs, and that had to be cleared, and that, that would explain the, uh, you know, the cold feet and legs. They also said that she developed a terrible cough. Well, Kathleen Pruel, Sudabar's husband, a 74-year-old chain-smoking alcoholic. I don't know how any more straight to say it to you. Let's call it like it is. He's one of those guys that when you say, look, uh, you know, I don't mind coming over having dinner, but, you know, this smoking thing really bothers me. He'll tell you straight up, this is my house and I'll do what I damn well please. But when you're in the company of a 100-year-old woman or infant, I would think you'd show a little courtesy and consideration and take those cancer sticks outside, but not this man. So Mary's sitting there with this terrible cough that put her in the emergency room because she stopped breathing on us at Care One that night. The doctors were pretty concerned about that, but most disturbing of all, the doctors told Barbara that Mary had a stage four wound in her sacrum that was as big as a man's fist. Now, I don't know what sort of experience any of you folks have had with some of these wounds, but if you can imagine a hole in your body the size of a fist, clear to the bone, then you can visualize what I'm talking about and the shock that it was, because this doesn't happen overnight. So, Did, did you ever a, find out what caused it, Stuart? Well, you know, the, 
the siblings say, well, it happened in care one, you know, it's a bed sore, yada, yada, yada. We never really got to the bottom of when this began and, and who uh, who should have caught it. But we do point the finger at the siblings because they had taken Mary into uh, Kathleen Pruel's home, and she'd been there for a while. What we think was is that they took care of Mary to a point where that cough was starting to kill her, and they knew she had that serious wound, and they knew that her legs were going cold, and they just didn't know what to do. So they got Mary off at Care One thinking, well, we'll just we'll get her off over there and see what happens. And uh, uh, there we were in the hospital. Mary got, uh, Mary got something of emergency surgery within a day or two to address that blockage. And uh, when Mary came out of that operation, I, I, uh, I must tell you that I thought she was going to die because she was so weakened from that operation. It was, it was, it was pretty scary to see Mary. She was so weak that we would feed her using a straw, and we would dip it into the soup and hold the end of the straw with our index finger and put it to her mouth. That was the only way she could take nutrients. I'm I'm not kidding you. Uh, She was just that bad off. And plus she was in terrible pain. She was turning. She was writhing in pain. She was sweating. It was heartbreaking to watch this. And it made you turn to God and, and ask God what his plan was and if this suffering could not come to an end. And I got to tell you, I don't give up. Uh, I've never given up in my life. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a Vietnam veteran that was once surrounded with, the, with my cohorts. And uh, we didn't give up for three days. And I've been one of those people that against impossible odds, I just don't give up. But that, that was Mary that I was looking at. And uh, she was in deep trouble. Well... Um, in comes Marianne Sudabar Mirko, one of Mary's daughters, one of Barbara's sisters. And she takes one look at us feeding Mary one morning and starts screaming, Don't feed her! Don't feed her! What do you think you're doing? And we were, we were pretty shocked, you know, when somebody says that to you. It's like, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You know? And we kind of ignored her, and we set about to continue to care for Mary in a most loving way. And uh, shortly thereafter, we had a conversation with uh, Mary Ann Mirko about this, and her argument was that Mary had to feed herself. i got to tell you, folks, Mary Ann was so wrong. Mary could not feed herself. Mary couldn't take a drink of water through a straw. Mary couldn't eat any food. Mary couldn't have any yogurt. Mary couldn't do any of the things that you and I take for granted uh, each and every day. And Mary was not going to be able to eat on her own. So thus began this uh, this process where we began to find out who we were dealing with. What we discovered shortly after that was that Marianne Mirko had obtained had covertly obtained a medical proxy over her mother, Mary. She had that document witnessed by her daughter, 
Marianne Merkel-Lazio and her daughter-in-law, Dawn Merkel. And they kept this a secret amongst themselves. Well, I go back to the old, what wicked web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Why would you get a medical proxy and not tell anyone? Why would you keep it to yourself? If this was a, you know, a family decision or, you know, a family need and concern, I would think that you would sit down with one another and say, you know, somebody's got to, somebody's got to take uh, take charge of this. Who, who's going Stuart? to do it? Yes. Stuart, how are our, how was she able to accomplish this? How did she get this done? Get this medical proxy? Well, we're not really sure, you know, where it was done and what have you, but. Basically, you go to the Internet and you pull down one of these medical proxy forms. They're all over the Internet. You can do it. You can get it for selling a car, you know, stuff like that. And uh, she pulled it down, apparently. And, you know, on there it states, you know, that I so-and-so do designate so-and-so to be my medical proxy and make these decisions. And it's got a space for the two witnesses. So that's how it was done, um, done privately amongst themselves. This form in New Jersey is really disturbing to me because you don't have to have it notarized and you don't have to have a court seal on it. As I jokingly said to friends of mine, Mr. Wiggles the dog could be your medical proxy if Mr. Wiggles the dog could get his paw print on the thing and you and I witnessed it. You don't have to know how to count. You don't know how you don't have to know how to speak English. Um, you don't have to be able to read or write. You don't have to be of uh, you know sound mind. You don't have to have a uh, you know a criminal free background or anything like this to obtain a medical proxy in the state of New Jersey. And uh, to me that that's scary because when you get a medical proxy like this you have the power of life and death over this individual. You can decide what medication this person is going to take or not take. In the news lately, there's a story about a woman who deprived uh, cancer treatments for her son and he died, and she's been up for, uh, you know, manslaughter charges and was just found guilty, I do believe I heard uh, this morning or yesterday. So with the medical proxy. You've got the power of life and death, and nobody can uh, question that. And, you know, this is this is in this country where we have, a, you know, murderers going up for appeals for years and years over a death sentence, but yet somebody with a medical proxy can sit back and make these decisions. So if that answers your question, um, Mary stabilizes and goes back to care one. Well, the folks at CARE One, you've got two levels of folks, basically. You've got the administrators and you've got the floor staff. The floor staff at CARE One were just about as good a folk as you could ask for caring for somebody like Mary. And they loved the fact that Barbara and I would come in at three hours in the morning or early afternoon and spend time helping them take care of Mary, get Mary out of bed, get her dressed. Uh, get her down the hall to an ice cream social or a sing-along, you know, these kind of things. And um, we would return in the late afternoon or early evening and sort of repeat the process for dinner time. 
help Mary pick out a movie on the uh, on the TV or something like that, or go to another sing-along or whatever entertainment the place might have for the day, and say Mary's prayers and say good night and come back tomorrow and do it again for the remaining nine months. So uh, one day... Whoa, something, something just happened there. Stuart? Yes. I think, okay, I, you just blinked out there for a minute. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Maybe it was my uh, my earpiece here. I'm wearing my uh, my earpiece with a microphone because the sound is so much better. I'll try to sit still with it. <laughs> so uh, okay. one day Barbara asked what particular medications were, be, were being given to Mary because this was heavy stuff. You know, it, it would knock Mary out. We would come to visit, Mary would be knocked out. And uh, Barbara was concerned because, uh, you know, it's her, it's her 100-year-old mother. Well, um, one of the floor nurses said, um, I can't tell you. You'll have to uh, speak to Robin and Barbara. They, they were the administrators. So I went to Robin and Barbara, and I said, excuse me. Barbara asked one of the, uh, one of the nurses, what medications Mary is on, and uh, we, you know, we'd like to know, but the nurse won't tell us, and she said to see you. Now, for me, that was just like, you know, just a casual question, the way I might ask you something. Well, Robin and Barbara uh, got really indignant about the whole thing and said, we don't have to tell you. And I said, well, that's okay. It's Barbara that wants to know. Barbara's Mary's daughter. She wants to know. Let's just go down and talk with her. We don't have to tell her anything, you know. So I'm looking at them like, what the heck is this about, you know? Because after all, somebody's paying about ten thousand a month for this for this care. I don't know about you, but if I get a customer that's giving me ten thousand a month, I'm a little bit more respectful than that, you know. Even if it's some guy from California. <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know, I figured out there's this California East Coast West Coast rivalry again. Doggone it! It's just not at baseball games. It's it's here. So well, well, what I'm trying to figure out, Stuart, is this: it, you're yep. paying ten thousand dollars a month for this woman to be in this care facility, and she's obviously not being cared for. What is it they are actually doing to warrant this huge fund? Well. You know, she's getting 20, she got 24-hour care, you know, three shifts of, uh, you know, nursing staff, uh, you know, that that come in that room plus a couple of nurses' aides that clean up and keep things going. And there is a, uh, there is a doctor in attendance, so if something comes along, you know, that there's somebody there to take care of her. And, you know, they're feeding her, they're doing her clothes, uh, her hair, you know, it's it's a pretty intense program in in many ways. And if anybody's ever seen, you know, how that goes on, it's uh, you know, it can be a bit busy. I don't know how how they do it. Sometimes they get thirty or forty people on a floor that they have to care for, and you know, they run a pretty lean bunch of staff. You, you know, you you empathize with the work they're doing, and and that's what made it easy for us to pitch in. Well, Robin pulled up Mary's binder, and she said, we don't have to tell you anything, and she starts flipping through the pages of Mary's medical binder, 
and I'm I'm sort of standing there like a, you know, like a fifth grade student, you know, being having the book thrown at me. I I didn't expect this at all. And as she's flipping through the pages to get to this uh, medical proxy that she's going to beat me about the head and shoulders with, she thumbs to a page with these four-inch letters, DNR. Now, if you don't know what DNR stands for, it stands for do not resuscitate, which means if Mary goes into some sort of a serious emergency, the instructions are you are not to resuscitate Mary. She could have choked on a piece of cake. And if the right person had been in the room and knew that DNR was in place, that person wouldn't have had to try to clear her airway. So uh, I didn't really let on that I had seen that. Can can you go into that a little bit more? A lot of people uh, seem to think that do not resuscitate means only in extreme situations, don't they? Well, they do. And I've heard this this addressed in, in the terms that you're speaking of now. But I don't particularly trust that, you know, that somebody's going to, you know, uh, look at it that way. If I walk it, in the room, too much of, it's too yeah. much of a temptation, isn't it? It to take any situation and and make it a do not resuscitate situation. It's too convenient. Absolutely, absolutely. If I walk in a room and somebody's choking, I go right to their side. I, you know, I, I don't make any distinction as to whether or not this person choked on a piece of cake or is having some sort of, uh, you know, attack that requires a tracheotomy. I don't know. So I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't hesitate. But if you're, if you're a staff person and you notice a DNR on this person and you happen to be walking down the hall and you hear them choking out, you can say, well, you know, this is like a tree falling. This is an act of God. And this is Mary's time. Well, we're not comfortable with that. We are raised Catholics. Uh, you know, we, we are practicing Catholics. We're just regular people. We're not going to let Mary choke under any circumstances. And if I'm walking down the hallway and your mother or your father, you know, calls for help, I'm going to answer. And believe me, on, on two occasions in the nine-month stay that Mary had at CARE 1, I actually heard people call for help. And, and went in their rooms and, and got a nurse in there because those people were in trouble. So I'm not really one that's comfortable with that DNR business. Um, it, it's an opportunity, you know, for somebody to make, you know, a big mistake. And uh, so this lady, Robin, she gets to the page with the uh, the medical proxy, and I tell her, I go, it's not notarized, there's no there's no court seal on this, you know, what is that? She slams the book in my face, and she says, I don't have to tell you anything. She throws the book back on the counter, and, the, uh, you know, she wanders off. And now we come to find out what's going on. The uh, medical proxy, Marianne Mirko, that got this thing covertly, she starts swinging the big stick telling everybody not to tell Barbara what's going on with Mary. And I don't know why she would do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because, after all, this is Barbara's mother, too. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know why she would ever do such a thing. Well, I'll tell you what I think. 
I think it's because they knew that that stage four wound had begun in their care, and they didn't want anybody to know that they had neglected Mary. That's what I think. And nobody's going to change my view of that because there's well, the really thing, no other reason the thing to is, do this. If, if she had had gotten infection, you know, from this and gone septic or something and had passed uh, while oh, in their boy. care, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Because that would have been noted, you know, at the time, uh, and so it would have had she, having been in their care for nine months, to have a wound like this, uh, would have pointed the finger directly at them. Uh, on yeah. the other hand, I do know that in the case of DNRs, if you pass in a nursing home or uh, a hospital, they don't do any autopsies and they don't make any note of any such wounds. I do know that. Uh, well, they assume you, you succumb to natural causes. I don't consider sepsis or, you know, severe infections natural causes, but that's how how most um, uh, states view it. As long as it's a hospital or a care facility, they, they don't do any um, extraneous examinations or make any notes. Yeah. Hey, many Christmas. Yeah, so you've got a little insight there. So we were we were sensing... You know some skullduggery going on here. You know we we didn't we didn't quite understand what this was about. You know this uh, this news blackout. But when the family had meetings about Mary, Marianne Murko would go ballistic in the meetings, telling the staff that they're not to discuss this in front of Barbara because she is because Marianne is the medical proxy and she's decided nobody's going to discuss this. So. Uh, some weeks later, you know, after this whole thing starts to break loose and they lose control, um, you know, the floor nurses are coming to us. And they're telling us what Mary's condition is. And they're telling us, you know, what these medications are. And they're heavy narcotics. And they're saying Mary doesn't need this. Mary needs to just rehabilitate, you know. And that's that's what we were doing there. We were helping Mary rehabilitate exercising her and going, taking her in the wheelchair for walks and looking at the flowers and, you know, little, uh, you know, little handheld weights so she could do flexes and just, you know, the whole thing. So um, there came a day when the, the discussion was is when Mary could go back home. Well, back home to the siblings was the pool residence with the chain smokers, and, and all those people lived. But home to Mary was her own house. Mary owns her own house. Her and her husband, Stephen Sr., built that house up from the very rocks in the ground. And Mary wanted to go home. Now, I know a lot of people think that going home is not such a good idea for, for a 100-year-old woman, but there's something, you know, very nice and comforting and even romantic about, you know, maybe passing in your own home. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. That's not too bad of a thing to do. I but, agree. I agree. <laughs> but these folks yeah. wouldn't have that. So anyway, um, they kind of put this off in the never-never file, you know, that this was going to happen in a month or so. And instead what had happened was it was being planned for uh, January, the first week of January. And when we found out about it, 
you know, we started to ask some questions. And, uh, of course, we, we ran into this roadblock, you know, with this uh, medical proxy. And it was getting worse. It was getting heated. It was getting very contentious. Because the more they didn't want to talk about it, the more determined we were that we were going to get to the bottom of this. You know how when something's going on and you sense, you know, that there's, there's something not right here, and it's an important enough matter where you need to press it, and you do. You know that kind of feeling? And that's yes, where I we do. Were. <laughs> I bet you do. So um, we got a hold of an attorney, uh, you know, a trusted attorney by the name of Joe Mecca. And we told Joe what was going on. And, and Joe knew Mary because he'd handled, handled some, of her, some of her legal papers. And um, he told us something that knocked us over backward in his office. It turned out that Stephen... Stephen Sudivar, the former president of Roach, had come into Joe's office with Mary a year or so prior and had himself installed as co-executor of the will. Up until that time, Barbara had been the executor. And Barbara said, well, now, wait a minute. How did, how did, yeah, how did he do that? Well, he just took Mary in there and they signed up the papers and someplace, you know, Stephen's a Stephen's a corporate guy, you know, he knows how to how to get another attorney to start these things and they so oh, Pete. Now uh, here here's what's really slick about it. If we get to court about all this stuff, you know, what he reveals is it was signed in New Jersey but filed in Delaware. Now he has a home in you know, a vacation home in Delaware. Now, we're going back to this what wicked web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Marianne gets a covert proxy and doesn't tell anyone. Stephen, he gets a co- covert power of attorney and doesn't tell anyone. Right? Because he gets it signed in New Jersey, as I said, and files it in Delaware. Now, what are you doing something like that for if you're not up to no good? Why aren't you sitting down with the family going, one of us has got to take the financial power of attorney. So we get to court, and we're on about this. Stephen won't talk, and Stephen won't talk, and finally it comes out that he's got the financial POA. So Joe Mecca tells us that there's this uh, co-executor situation. We find out later that Marianne's doing her covert business over there. Stephen's doing his covert business over here and crossing state lines to accomplish it. And we're thinking to ourselves, what, in God's name, for what reason are you being so secretive? So um, we, we have this, uh, you know, this consultation with Joe Mecca, and we tell him, you know, this thing's going to court, because we don't trust these people. We don't really know what they're on about. And um, the action gets filed. And while this is all going on, they attempt to move Mary out of Care One and into the Pruel residence, and we challenge that. And Care One comes up with this Doctor Al Rafi, whom no one in the family knows. It was admitted in court that the other side didn't know this person. Barbara certainly didn't know this doctor, and he had. Um, 
evaluated Mary and declared her incapacitated. This was this was the oral uh, presentation to it. Well, in New Jersey, it happens to take two doctors to have somebody declared incapacitated, and Dr. Al Rafi was one. And in New Jersey, as I understand it, the personal physician has to do it. To this date, no personal physician for Mary has has uh, signed that. And um, so, so you have don't have the second physician's signature. Certainly not. And what's more is through the course. Of the uh, court case, Joe Mecca handed Stephen Sudivar Dr. Al Rafi's report while Stephen was on the stand and said, could you read this into the record for us? And it was actually a brilliant move. Stephen Sudivar could not read the doctor's handwriting. And we all know this funny story about how doctors write. Why would you write such an important report in a scroll that no one could read? Well, I can't answer that question except even Al Rafi's report has not been read into the record because you can't read it. Now, if I was a doctor who was making a statement like that, I would have my office type that up. You know, I just would. And I would sign that and whatever, you know, legal weight it has to us. What we think happened was there came a time when Care One realized that the medical proxy was imperfect and they got this Al Rafi to come in and do this for them because they were wide open because for the nine months that Mary was at Care One, they wouldn't tell Barbara anything, you see, under the color of this, uh, what we feel is a flawed medical proxy and this, this, uh, this talk of incapacitation. The DNR that I spoke of was signed by Mary Ann Mirko with a little bracket that said that Mary Ann Mirko signed it due to Mary's incapacitation. Well, let me tell you something. Christmas week, I sat down with Mary myself, and we filled out well over a dozen Christmas cards that Mary signed and wrote little notes to everybody in. Merry Christmas, I love you, hope to see you this week, yada, yada, yada. All the sweet little things that a 100-year-old woman would write on a Christmas card. Mary Sudavar, for a 100 years old, is the epitome of what you and I would want to be at 100. I can tell you straight up, if you asked her what she did yesterday, she can't tell you with certitude. But if you sat there at an old black and white movie, she will tell you that she went to go see that movie in the theater with her husband in 1930, and she will name the actors and actresses and the story. So this idea that Mary can't tell you what medication she takes for what somehow or another equates to incapacitation, but she can sit there and tell you what her daughter liked when she was five years old at the breakfast table or didn't like for dinner and all that. You know, you, you look at somebody like that and you go, <laughs> I don't know what I wore yesterday. You know, uh, what, what the heck are we worried about this 100-year-old dear heart worried about, you know, what she wore yesterday when she can recall who went to school, where, when, and what friends and names were. So, this idea of the incapacitation is outrageous. And, um, you know, so they got her out of there at Care One, and they put her back in the pools home. We argued it uh, in front of Judge McVeigh in the uh, Passaic Superior Court in something called a chancery court. Now, I don't like the name chancery. I don't take chances. When you uh, 
when you've been on a uh, on a battlefield, you are you are risk averse for the rest of your life. You you don't do things other people might do because you get the willies, you know, when you think something's going on. So I'm risk averse and anyway, uh, uh this this court case begins in front of Judge McVeigh in the Chancery. And uh I've I've been on jury duty in Los Angeles. I was a candidate for the grand jury in Los Angeles, which is different than the grand jury here. Grand jury in Los Angeles, you get sequestered for a year. You hear the cases that uh, the secret cases and the secret testimonies, and uh, you know to get to get nominated for that is a high honor, as far as I'm concerned. I wasn't chosen, but uh, I've sat in these cases before, and I'd never heard a chancery. Judge McVeigh describes a chancery as it comes from old English law, which seems to be the way New Jersey still does things around here. And it's you go to the chancellor, who is the eyes and ears of the king. And she's actually said this in the courtroom, which just astonishes me because I'm an American, and we ain't got no kings no more. As a matter of fact, we threw those off a long time ago. But this is, you know, this is New Jersey, and this is how the judge looks at it. So the case is, proceeds. Um, is, is, is New Jersey a commonwealth? I know Kentucky and Massachusetts are. And that is what it is, the old English law. A commonwealth operates under old English law. Um they don't uh they don't go with the civil and all of that. They uh so you might check into that because that might be the status of your of your state. You know, I don't really know, but it, you know, I might have seen that somewhere and not realized what I was looking at. And I uh-huh. will back I will follow on that. I will backtrack that. So uh, okay. we get in front of Judge McVeigh's court. And Judge McVeigh is enamored by the fact that a former president of Roche Laboratories is in her courtroom. And uh, Marianne Sudavar Mirko is kind of locally well-known in Patterson, New Jersey, where this court is, because she runs a program called 4Cs, the uh, Coordinated Child Care Center. Uh, you know, it's one of these uh, preschool things. It's a 501c3. Um, so, you know, the judge, the judge knows these personalities. She doesn't know Barbara. And the other thing that was rather uh, interesting as well as disturbing at the same time, Attorney John Ridley is uh, Sudavar, the uh, defendant Sudavar's attorney. John Ridley works for a law firm called Drinker, Biddle, and Reef. I'd never heard of them. Turns out they're very well-known, very prestigious. And Mr. Ridley has handled a few cases, you know, that, uh, you know, are somewhat infamous, I guess. And the judge makes these remarks, you know, about John Ridley being in a court. And, oh, my God, it's a love fest, you know. So, you know, as a petitioner, you kind of go, oh, no, what have we gotten ourselves into here? So the case rambles on. Judge McVeigh puts Mary in the pool home. And about the only thing we got out of Judge McVeigh is is, uh, Roland Pruel, Kathleen's husband, was told to smoke outside. Well, if you've ever seen a 74-year-old lifelong chain smoker, he's not going outside. You know, we got winners out here, you know. He's not going outside to smoke. And everybody knows it. You know, that guy can't quit smoking 
you know, he does that. He does that notorious cough or smoke where he turns purple and you think he's going to pass out. Um, his fingers are yellow. You know, he's got an ashtray in every room in the house. He's not going to stop smoking, and he ain't going to stop you, drinking. You just, seventy four. You 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 just described me. I'm a forty five year smoker, but I don't have yellow fingers. <laughs> I'm pretty active well, too. Listen, you gotta quit smoking; it'll kill you. What's the uh, matter with you? But I ain't been able to quit them either. <laughs> well, sorry. Well, yeah. <laughs> you and I are gonna have a talk about this off the air. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I don't think you would smoke around a hundred-year-old woman or infants, would you? No. When my grandbabies no. were here, I smoked outside. Exactly. Well, no. this guy wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done it. I've seen him do it. I've hit the roof over it, you know, with Barbara after we've left. You know, I, I can't tolerate it. Look, I got to tell you something personal. Besides what we're talking about here, my mother and father were of the World War II generation. And uh, my mother died too young because of smoking. And I'll tell everybody that wants to hear it, my mother had cancer, but it killed my father. And the reason it killed my father was is he was so concerned and so upset about my mom having cancer that it killed him. He, he died, you know, out of, you know, concern for my mother. He really did. He, and he went before her. So uh, when we talk about smoking and what it does, I've seen it. It's broken my heart. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's just one of those things that bothers me. So at any rate, uh, Mary goes into this home, and Barbara has these visits. You know, she she gets. Uh, Barbara works in Boston, lives in New Jersey. It's difficult for her to uh, be here every day now. And Barbara gets these weekend visits. And all of a sudden, these people are angry now because they've been sued. And the truth is out about these uh, conditions Mary has. And now they're going to make it just as difficult as they can on Barbara. So Barbara shows up to the visit one day, and there is an armed guard in plain clothes on the premises who challenges her, saying, who are you, what are you doing, and what's your business here? And Barbara says, who are you? And he identifies himself as uh, John Machiarelli, and that, uh, you know, she better, she better, you know, play by the rules or he's going to eject her. Well, Barbara's a Jersey girl, and she's the sweetest gal you'd ever want to meet. But let me tell you what. Blood is thicker than the mud. And that guy tried to get himself in between Barbara and the relationship with her mother because Stephen Sudovar, Marianne Sudovar, Kathleen Sudovar, uh, they all got together and said, we're going to show them. And uh, I called the police. I, I wouldn't go in the house. I just dropped Barbara off. I go sit across the street. And I called the police, and the police came out. So they asked this guy, said, who are you? Well, it turns out he's a retired Passaic County Sheriff. And uh, they tell him, are you armed? And he goes, yes, I am. And they said, do you have a gun permit? He goes, yes, I do. And, they, you know, he shows it to him, and he does. You know, because all cops have their own gun permits where the rest of us can't carry, <laughs> you know. So uh, 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so uh, in the police report it says that the Wayne Police Department, Wayne is the city that we live in here, the Wayne Police Department had never been notified of these guys' presence. Well, let me tell you something. I have a security background myself in Los Angeles. Um, I'm what you call an executive security driver. I don't do prom runs in the limousine business. You know, I don't do these bar crawls. I don't take people to the strip joints. I go to places like the Los Angeles airport with several other drivers, and we pick up the president of Ford Motor Company and move them about, or we take you two to the Academy Awards, or we take, uh, you know, princes from uh, from foreign lands to their hotels and, you know, other, other various personalities, uh, some you know, some you don't. But they all have something in common. They have a concern for their safety, and they have bodyguards with guns. And the one thing that we do in that business that I really like is, is we check in with the local police department, and we tell them, oh, at 8 o'clock we're going to be at the Los Angeles airport at terminal, you know, at the Bradley International Terminal, and we're going to be bringing somebody out, you know, who is uh, this, that, or the other in, in this world. And, um, we're going to be putting them in cars, and there's going to be armed guards about. And we're going to be taking them to the uh, to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, uh, you know, they're going to be staying here for a couple of weeks, and they're going to enjoy the beautiful Southern California weather. And we're going to let the Beverly Hills Police Department know, because you know what happens. Somehow, someway, every once in a while, one of these armed retired officers or off-duty officers encounter an officer who is in uniform on duty, and the first thing you know, they're shooting at each other. Where not for the fact, well, you know, like um, if if there's a road rage incident or some, you know, some incident where a policeman's involved, and suddenly, you know, an off-duty or retired officer is discovered to have a gun on himself, and a police officer, not knowing who this person is, he pulls his gun, and the first thing you know, you've got this accidental shooting, you know. Fratricide, if you want to call it that. So that's why you always check in. These guys had not called the Wayne police to say, uh, we got this private job at 11 o'clock on Saturday over here, you know, on uh, Newark Pump and Turnpike. It's a family situation. I'm going to be there with my gun. And if this uh, five foot six Barbara Sudabar gets out of line, why, by God, I'm going to take charge of this situation. So the Wayne police report, put on the report that these uh, – these guys had not uh, checked in. So we went through several weeks of this nonsense where these guys were there, and I was having a fit. <laughs> Again, I'm a Vietnam veteran. You know, uh, some of us will have nothing to do, you know, with this with this violence anymore. And, uh, you know, it's a difficult sort of uh, existence sometimes when you pick up the morning paper and you read about all this violence where lives are lost. And I'm just not comfortable thinking that there's some guy waiting for Barbara to come visit her mother that's carrying a gun uh, for a visit like that. So I got a hold of Adult Protective Services. And I said, look, I, I don't know what to tell you here. You know, this is not necessary. I'm not a threat to these people. Barbara certainly isn't a threat to these people. And nobody's going to kidnap Mary, you know. So, uh Adult Protective Services never got back, but the guards were removed very shortly thereafter. 
and and we're going through these uh, you know these crazy court dates. Whenever Judge McVeigh had a chance to listen to us, she'd give us 48 hours notice, and everybody had to scramble to be there. Not the least of which was Barbara, who works in Boston, and you know had to get down here, you know, on a literally short notice. So, um, John Ridley, the attorney for the other side. Marianne Merkel and her husband, Kathleen Pruel and her husband, they all want to go on European vacations. You remember when that volcano blew up in Iceland or whatever it was uh-huh. a year ago? Well, that was the time yeah. they all wanted to go on their European vacations. And if you remember, well, you should have let them go. And... <laughs> well, we wanted to. You <laughs> 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 fly right into that thing. You go right ahead. Uh, there you go. But that was the time period, right? So John Ridley, the attorney for the other side, he jumps up and goes, we want a facilitator for the visits because I'm not going to be here and the siblings are not going to be here. And Jess McVeigh installs a facilitator of their choosing, Benny Versace, from Spectrum Geriatric Care in Butler, New Jersey. And the judge's instructions were quite clear and in the record that Versace is not there to oversee or supervise the visits. She is there to uh, negotiate the time, facilitate the arrival, and leave the room and, uh, you know, just kind of hang out till the visit's over. Well, Mr. Ridley, as it turns out, had exchanged an email with Miss Versace and I, I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me because it's been entered into the court record. Mr. Ridley ran away with the fall when it came to the limitations of Versace's installation. And in the footnote says, if Mecca doesn't like it, he can go to the judge. What Versace did was she injected herself into the visits in the most intrusive of ways, became part of the conversation, talked about her artificial insemination to a 100-year-old practicing Catholic. Now, I don't know about other folks that might be listening to this right now, but Mary is not a person that's comfortable with this New Age sort of stuff, you know? And Barbara was appalled. You know, Barbara was like, I really don't want her talking I'm about sorry. this thing. <laughs> you go right ahead. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Mary is a Sullivan from Boston that was born a hundred years ago. You know. Did she so, know this hundred year old person? <laughs> or was this just somebody she picked out? I I what yeah. in the world? I'm sorry, I don't know. Stuart. So <laughs> by the way, Barbara's sitting there with the tape recorder in the open recording all of this stuff. We've got hundred and eight tapes. Right? You know, of this of everything that's gone on because we don't trust these people, you know. And Barbara wants to, you know, record for posterity the conversations with her mother. You know, if if, if Mary talks about a, a name or a person that Barbara's not familiar with, you know, Barbara might want to recall that someday and you know, so she's got this tape recorder going. And Versace is heard talking about herself repeatedly through these these visits. So one day Barbara hires a man named Roland Petit, who's affiliated with the Crystal Cathedral in California. 
if you know about the uh, Hour of Power with the Reverend Uh-oh. Julie. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Today is the yes, day the yes. Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad. Yes. That booming voice. Yes, yes. So and send us Roland your money. Petit, Roland Petit had been uh, affiliated with the church, and he's in the Reformed Church of Pompton Plains out here. And he has a very strong social background. You know, he's educated. He's got his degrees. He's got his degree of divinity. He's an elder in the church. And uh, Barbara's Catholic priest is, is working this church alone out here. And he, he couldn't come to all of these things. So Barbara decided to hire Roland Petit because Barbara needed a second. She needed a witness because these people are treacherous in our, in our view. And Benny Versace was there. And Barbara wasn't comfortable with Benny Versace from Spectrum Geriatric Care. So she needed a set of eyes and ears. And we are so glad that uh, Roland Petit was retained and agreed to participate because when Benny Versace was called to testify about how the visits were going, Benny Versace kicked the dog duty, uh, dookie out of Barbara's good name and character you know, like a hired hack for these people, these defendants. And Mr. Roland Roland Petit testified right behind her and debunked a lot of what Versace said. Now, I got to tell you that uh, Versace did not show up at court the next day she was called to testify saying that her child was sick. I have to believe that Versace realized her goose was cooked because the judge wasn't too thrilled about what she was hearing from Mr. Petit. But I ask you, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Benny Versace, who has her own little business going, her little uh, cottage industry there, or are you going to or are you going to believe an ordained minister from the Reformed Church or not? Well, I tend to think that if I were a a juror, I'd be listening to Mr. Petit over the other lady because, you know, he's he's a man of the cloth. And I know that there's a lot of of people that don't uh, respect that, but uh, Mr. Petit, you know, is a a pretty convincing individual. So uh, Versace doesn't show up to finish her testimony, and you can't get her in there the whole nine yards. And the case kind of stalls over Christmas week. Versace tells Barbara December 23rd, I want all the money that I have coming to me or I'm not going to facilitate the visits. Barbara was shocked. Christmas week. Christmas is special to Barbara and Mary as much as any other mother and daughter. And, uh, you know, this this was a, a real, you know, December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor to Barbara. Barbara was not expecting this. Um, and... You know, this was this was just a terrible thing for Versace to pull. What Versace probably thought was that she'd been disgraced, she'd been found out, and that uh, she was going to get out while the getting was good. And um, the first week of January, we were back in front of Judge McVeigh, and Judge McVeigh found out what happened. And this is where we really stopped trusting this judge. What the judge said was that she did not appreciate Benny Versace putting the court in such a position as to demand all this money uh, right out of the blue or the visits weren't going to go further. 
And the judge held Barbara in contempt in the very next breath for not paying Versace off. Now, what? I, I was floored. That judge threatened Barbara with jail for contempt of court. Now, it's in the record, Judge McVeigh said it several times, that any monies that would be afforded towards Ms. Versace would be determined later on, quote, unquote. But Versace decided she was going to, you know, pull a power play and get hers now. And how we ever came to a place where the judge was going to hold Barbara in contempt, I don't know. But I'm telling you and your listeners, Barbara has not seen her mother since January 9th of this year over this matter. It is now about Betty Versace getting her money over Barbara seeing her mother or getting her mother out of that house, getting her back in care one, or getting her in her own home. Because there is no doctor that's declared Mary incapacitated. The medical proxy is bogus, and the personal physician hasn't signed on, and Mary has no known disease state. And that's what Joe Mecca said at the oral summations. Joe Mecca addressed the court from Mary's perspective, saying Mary's rights have been violated here by the court, that Mary hasn't had a voice in this court, that nobody from the court has ever visited Mary to see who Mary is and what she's about, and that this whole thing was some sort of power play by Marianne Sudabar Mirko to exert this medical proxy over Mary, for God knows what reason, for the Pruels to get whatever money they can get their hands on to take care of Mary in the meantime, and for Stephen Sudivar to be able to, you know, kind of push it off on everybody else and let them all take care of this. Stephen Sudivar is a multimillionaire in Montclair, New Jersey. He lives in a 100-year-old mansion. You know, it would be nothing for him to bring his mother into that house and put her down the hall where he'd never have to deal with her. But he doesn't want to get his hands involved in something like this. And we have stood back, and time and again, Judge McVeigh has not done anything in real time to protect Mary, uh, to, you know, to protect Mary's rights um, with regard to allegedly being incapacitated with Mary's right to visit with Barbara or whomever Mary would like to visit because Mary is not to be told what's going on by order of the court. So I say to you, what the hell is going on here in this judicial system where somebody can pull a stunt like that? You know, where, where you and I would go before a judge and spend almost 200000 in attorney's fees saying, um, you know, uh, this is not right. We want, we want you to make a decision. We, we're going to bring this before the court. And to see this thing uh, just go nowhere in the last year, do you realize that every day that Mary is alive is a gift? Every day. Yes. I haven't seen Mary myself since December 28th in 09 because they hate me so much they don't want me in that house. You know, and they've, the, judge hasn't, uh, the judge hasn't allowed me in that house and all this other stuff. I mean, this... You know, this whole charade, this whole kabuki dance is going on. Barbara filed for something called the Petition for Litigants' Rights, and the judge refused to hear it. It's a pretty fancy term. Basically, it means Barbara has rights as a litigant, 
and, and she wants them enforced. February 9th of 2010, Judge McVeigh ruled that Barbara could visit her mother three and a half hours minimum per day, just like she did when Mary was at CARE 1. Since that ruling, February 9th, 2010, Barbara has never, ever visited Mary for more than an hour because Mary Ann Murko asserts the medical proxy saying, well, she doesn't feel good, she's tired, you can't visit her today. They dream up all these excuses of why the visit should be abbreviated or not at all. And all this right under the very nose of the judge who issued an order in writing that says Versace is supposed to facilitate these visits at three and a half hours minimum per day, not Saturday and Sunday only, per day, three and a half hours minimum. In other words, Barbara could visit her 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but she can't visit any less than three and a half. This judge has allowed that to pass right under her very nose. Judge McVeigh, if you go to roadreport.com and ratedjudge.com, you will read all of this stuff that people write about her and what she does. There, there are. Where is this? Google, where is this again, Stuart? Where Robe is the Report. Roadreport.com. Okay. And you read these things in here about how this judge bankrupts people's accounts by slathering on you know, uh, lawyers and guardians and all this other stuff, you know, to the tune of 300 bucks an hour. Who's got this kind of money for layers of this sort of stuff? So Judge McVeigh has come under a lot of criticism, you know, for uh, installing these people. And I should say, in the beginning of this case, Joe Mecca asked for, an, you know, an attorney ad litem to be installed for Mary, and the judge refused it, Okay. And, and we asked for it again because we don't know if Mary's accounts are being looted by Stephen Sudebar because he has this financial power of attorney that he doesn't have to account for until after Mary's dead. We don't know, you know, if Hospice of New Jersey is, uh, is billing out, you know, for cutting off fluids, nutrients, and administering morphine, you know, for whatever money they get. We don't know if the pools are intercepting the Social Security checks for Mary and, you know, going on fine European vacations, the whole nine yards. Uh, because Judge McVeigh sits there and listens and doesn't uh, enforce her own orders, and uh, these people run away with the ball. Now, you've heard other stories from other people that you've interviewed on this show and you know what I'm talking about. And the people that might yeah. be listening know what I'm talking about. But these, these folks Speaking who, of, who run... of the listeners, um, if anybody has any questions or comments for Stuart, the call-in number is 917-388-4520. That's 917-388-4520. If you've got questions or comments you'd like to make, go ahead, Stuart. So... You know, when you see this for yourself for the first time, as I have, you sit there and you look to the left and the right and you go, you know, I've read this in the papers. I've heard about it on TV. I can't believe it's happening here, you know. And this thing just goes on and on. I kid you not, 
Our attorney's fees are $200,000. And essentially, we've got nothing, you know, out of this court. And what we did get out of the court, it's not enforced. Now, I'm not kidding you about this, you know. I was even assaulted by Marianne Mirko at Care One one day. And I decided she wasn't going to put her hands on me. And I filed uh, a complaint against her in the municipal court. And she counterfiled. And, and I was found guilty of assaulting her. This is the most astonishing oh, thing I've ever seen. I'm serious. For a misdemeanor, I have been found guilty of assaulting her. I've got it on tape. I've got the incident on tape, and it's free for anybody to listen to. You get a hold of me, then I'll, I'll shoot you out a, a, an email with it. And you can hear me saying, you know, stop pushing me, stop pushing me. You've got my arm caught in the door. You've got my arm caught in the door. She had her full weight against the door with my arm in it. And the nurses came and had to help me push the door open and get her off my arm. Uh, you know, and yet you go before a municipal judge who rules against you. And you sit there and you say, you know what? All this stuff that you hear about, about corruption in the courts, is going on here. You know? I don't. I don't see it in any way. I am not afraid of Judge McVeigh, and I am not afraid of Judge uh, Peter uh, Weiss in the Wayne Municipal Court, you know. Um, I am one of those guys that has walked out the gate in the combat zone just before sundown to go do a listening post with two or three other guys all night long in, uh, you know, in a war zone. And I have walked out the gate at 4 in the morning to do mine sweeps. Um, I have hunkered down, surrounded, and I have lived to tell about it. And I am a righteous man who fears, uh, you know, no retribution from the court. I, I, I heard Mr. Mandela once say when he was a prisoner in South Africa that, that's where a righteous man belongs, is in prison. And uh, I am not afraid uh, to stand up to these people. I do that because of Barbara, and I do that because of a 100-year-old woman that these people are running roughshod over. And uh, I regret nothing of what's happened here. Um, this, this case that went against me, uh, I filed an appeal on it, and then I thought better of it. Because uh, the Bible scripture talks about that no man be judged, lest he be judged. And uh, well, I got a certain. I'll tell you what my attitude is on that. It, <laughs> I hear this uh, repeatedly from people about how these uh, predators uh, stage these supposed attacks on themselves, and actually they're the aggressor. So yeah. I figure if I'm ever in that situation, and they start that crap with me. I'm going to get charged anyway. I'm beating the crap out of them, Stuart, and that's just a fact. I'll claw their eyes out for them. I'll give well, them something to charge me with. Um, that's how I, I felt just, about it. That's yeah. how I felt about it. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. I stand six feet. I weigh 218 pounds soaking wet. And uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm not in too bad a shape. I used to drive tow trucks. I get on my hands and knees at 3 o'clock in the morning and and do a towing business, and I've kept fairly physically active in my lifetime. 
And if Marianne Merkel had ever been attacked by me, just as you say, everybody would have known it. Everybody would have known it. The only reason I didn't explode on that door when my arm was pinned was is I knew I would send Marianne Merkel flying across the room on the other side and she'd go to the hospital. So I took the hit. I took the hit that day, and I took it in court. And uh, this is what they do. This is where I think that someone like these people are sociopaths. Because if you if you read up on, on sociopaths, these people fall into the category. You know, they're, they're persecuted, but they're controlling. They're um, passive, but they're manipulative. Um, they seek, you know, uh, they seek the blessings of authority. And, oh, my God, if you, if you ever read well, up mimic. on a sociopath. Yeah, right? they mimic. They don't have any real feelings. They watch what other people do and the response they're getting, and they mimic that behavior yeah. Uh, yeah. to get well, that same response, whether it's approval or disapproval, whatever it is. But they mimic. They don't actually feel anything of themselves. There's also another pathology I became aware of in my readings, and it's called the burdened caregiver. And this is where, you know, the martyrdom complex is, you know. Oh, if you think it's easy for me to make these decisions on my mother's behalf, it's not. It's not. But yet, you know, they swing this sword, you know, cutting down the uh, the opposition in their burden, you know. So you listen to all this on the, on, the, on the stand, you know, from these people about, you know, how they're just giving up so much of themselves for this. And you sit there and you just go, man, I don't believe I'm listening to this. The stuff that has been said in this courtroom by these people against Barbara are the stuff that you would not allow your attorney to say about your sibling because they are still your, your brother or your sister. And these people have allowed their attorneys to abuse and uh, insult and impugn Barbara's good name. I'm telling you, if Barbara had ever, ever exhibited conduct that I thought was, you know, uh, you know, wrong, like drinking or verbal abuse or physical abuse against her mother, believe me, I would have been the first one to put a stop to it. Barbara has done nothing of those things, you know. They have totally I, maligned Barbara's character, and that's what they do in this in this uh, yes. in this arena that we're talking about. You yeah, were going this to say? is a, this this is this happens across the board. I, I've heard this from so many people that this is one of the things that's done is is the family name is tarnished. Uh, they and this stuff stays even if it's. Uh, declared to be unfounded and dismissed, it still stays on the record in the probate it's court. It's on the record, as exactly. It, yes, as though it exactly. was a, a, a legit, legitimate complaint. Can I ask you, Stuart, uh, at the beginning of this, what the value was, uh, I'm always interested in this, what the value was of Mary's estate and what you think it might be now? Well, I've seen nothing in writing, so anything that I would say here is mere speculation. I would estimate that the estate probably hovered in the area of $1 million between the value of the house on the common market that she has um, and some of the monies 
that Mary and her husband saved. Uh, he also worked at Roche. Steve Sudovar Sr. worked as Roche as a plant manager. Uh, you know, he was a, he was a blue collar worker, but you know, he, he worked there all his life, and probably did pretty good with stocks and what have you. So I would estimate a million. Um, Barbara figures that money is pretty much gone. You know, because well, you'll, um, you'll find out when it is because suddenly everybody will back out. Uh, they won't want to <laughs> once the money's gone, the estate is gone. Now, now they won't want to be bothered with it anymore. Uh, you yeah. know, they can't do anything else to benefit the ward. That's yeah. the pattern, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The only thing I can see Mary has going in her favor is if she can outlast her estate, um, that there is someone, you know, Barbara, who would take care of her, um, which might prevent them from medicating her to her demise. So uh, I, I, this stuff, they just, almost I did just that can't this. Oh, man. They almost did that once. Barbara went over one day, and uh, she'd, she'd had the police meet her there because there was, there was some verbal abuse coming through the front door at the Pearl residence. And uh, the police brought Barbara to the front door, and... Uh, Stephen Sudabar tells Barbara that mom's not doing very well, quote unquote. And you know, Barbara bucked up for that. I mean, you know, she's she's a realist. She wasn't in denial. She goes in the room. Mary is laid out. Three weeks before Mary was sitting up, and I sent you a photograph of Mary. She's sitting up, she's got her juice, she's got her yogurt, she's got her little exercise ball, and she just looks fantastic. But if you'd have seen the photograph that I saw of Mary laid out three weeks later, compliments of hospice of New Jersey who denied fluids, nutrients, and heavy doses of morphine, you would be aghast. So they will try How to did hospice get in this? How I want to know how does hospice get into this, and when did they start getting into these guardianship cases? Well, hospice showed up at CARE 1 just before Mary was taken out. And they were introduced to Mary as a part of her medical regime. And, oh, boy, did they hate Barbara. They were preloaded against Barbara coming through the door. You should have seen this. Hi, my name is Barbara. What's your name? I'm Joanne. I'm from Hospice of New Jersey. Oh, Joanne, it's so nice to meet you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious. Who do you work for? Hospice of New Jersey. Hospice? What do we need hospice for? I don't have to tell you. We go back into this behind the medical proxy business, okay? When Barbara called me on the phone to say Mary was in cardiac distress, um, I called, actually, Barbara called 911, and when the ambulance got there, uh, hospice turned away the ambulance. I called the watch commander. Sergeant Pudluka, and I said, you know, I had a conversation with Sergeant Pudluka before we went over there uh, that day because, you know, we've been having trouble with these people. And, I, you know, I made it, like I said earlier, you know, uh, my practice to notify the police when we were going to be there, how long Barbara was going to be there, and I would notify them when we had left successfully. 
And um, I called Padluka up, and I said, uh, Barbara reports to me that they've over-medicated Mary. And the police department uh, sent out a supervisor, and they had a big discussion. Well, hospice won that argument. And I'll tell you what. I used to think highly of people that worked for hospice until this event. Mary did not need a heavy dose of morphine. The last time I saw Mary, she was sitting up. She was joyful. She was happy. And I had just brought her spaghetti from the kitchen, from the commissary to her room, and they were getting ready to take her away to the Purple residence. Mary was just fine. This idea that you get hospice involved and everybody walks around with those long faces, you know, to lay somebody down like they were a dog that had outlisted this usefulness is abhorrent to me. And this is, this is where, they, where I have turned on hospice. I, I, I will never abide by hospice again. Uh, you know, I, I carry uh, on my driver's license a, uh, a donor dot on my California license. It's a little, little pink dot. I don't know if it's the same where you are and everybody else's. Look, if you find me, you know, at the side of the road or wherever, you know, my time comes, you know, I'm a donor. You know, pass my, pass whatever you can to help somebody else have a better life, you know. But this idea that you bring hospice in and, and you, you're going to stop feeding them, you're going to start denying them fluids, and at the same time administer these heavy doses of narcotics, I'm sorry, we part company right there. I'm not going to participate in that. I don't care. Because, again, who, who in the, the hell does this? Who does they this? Do. Uh, who, they do. Who, who, they who goes in the moral high ground. Did they make this decision? What is moral about denying somebody nutrition and and hydration? This is uh, I I and giving them a shot and goes home and lives with themselves. Right, and Jeez. goes home and lives with themselves and leads some sort of normal life. Those little weasels jumped in their car and they scooted out of there just as fast as they could because they knew I was across the street in the parking lot waiting for Barbara, you know, to end the visitation. And the police, you know, were involved. They were, they practically ran out of that house. You should have seen this. You know, and I didn't know fully what was going on. I didn't know who these people were. I'd never seen them before in my life. But I started to put two and two together. Look, I'm telling you, my mother died of cancer. I was there holding her hand the moment she died. Okay? I know what it is. I have been on the battlefield and I have had three people laying at my feet that were shot up really bad. And you know what we were doing? We were fighting to keep them alive. We were waiting for the medevac to get them out of there, to give them a fighting chance to live. Nobody gave up on them. I didn't give up on my mother. The care facility that my mother was in didn't give up. The hospital my dad was in the night he died didn't give up. But these people, they, they fill themselves with this, this moral you know, situation where they what, make what, these decisions. What is moral about this? And I don't see you it. You know, I, I don't either, Stuart. Uh, I, hospice um, hospice was, was set up for uh, cancer victims who were, you know, or other people with other terminal illnesses. 
um, to when to make sure they, they had companionship and, and that they were being cared for. When did this get converted to this interference in these guardianship cases and making these declarations of don't give them food, don't give them water, and let's just starve them out? When did this happen? Well, um, I can't give it to you with certitude chronologically, but I'm seeing it in the last 10 years from what I've read. And you know what the, the GSA, the General Accounting Office, or whatever it is, the U.S. government says? That, uh, right. that this, is the, this is the highest incidence of, of Medicare, Medicare fraud. Is oh, hospice. yeah. It's, it's hospice. They're well, pointing the finger at hospice uh, on some of these reports. Um, you know, because they, they're they're getting paid, you know, and they're getting paid yeah. by by Medicare. You know, very few people can afford this out of their own pockets, as you say. You know, the money goes pretty fast. And, and I want to say something about the money. And I think you know, you you might divine this from what I have said about Barbara. Barbara has a has a uh, Barbara has a point of view. She says. Whatever money my mother has, I want to see that spent on my mother in life. I don't want to see it divided with me after death. Okay? Now, that, that's the person Barbara is. Whatever that money is takes care of Mary. You know, that's Barbara's point of view. She argues that to this day. Barbara will sell her house. Barbara has a fine two-bedroom, I'm sorry, four-bedroom house two stories, on a cul-de-sac in New Jersey. This house is 10 years old, and Barbara will sell this house right now and spend that money on Mary's care and take care of Mary in, her, in Mary's home. Barbara will quit her job and do this because Barbara's not in this for the money. Barbara's in this for her mother. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know to, to polish this story up. I'm telling you straight up, Barbara has put her savings on the line to fight these people. She'll put her house on the line to be able to stay with her mother all the days of her life. While these people leave Mary and go on European vacations, right? This is what they do. They just, you know, they go off, they leave a facilitator behind. They got this whole thing locked up, you know, with the medical proxy and hospice and the facilitator, and the well-heeled lawyers of Trinker, Biddle, and Reeves. And Stephen Sudovar is a multimillionaire, and, and he, you know, he affords these lawyers, and they beat down on Barbara and talk poorly on Barbara. Well, we've been for oral summations in, in Judge McVeigh's courtroom, and these people are still sending letters. If these people come to find that I'm talking to you tonight, they will send a letter to Judge McVeigh tomorrow morning on the fax machine and deliver the hard copy complaining to high heaven that I'm talking about this out of school. Well, I am not a defendant in the case. I am not a named party in the case. I have stepped back and deliberately kept my name out of this so that I could speak with you, so that I could speak with others, so I could exercise my First Amendment to freedom of speech, and so that I could fight like hell for the likes of Mary Sudebar, who can't fight for herself, because the way this crazy country is, is handling People like Mary, people don't understand what you and I and the other folks that are affected like this are going through. The Sarah and Gary Harveys of this world, the Rudys and the Glorias 
and uh, Mr. Israel last week that you spoke to, and uh, Tony, the city councilman in New Jersey, the firefighter, who's watched uh, people like Judge McVeigh do this, you know, over and again. Um, Jill of the uh, the Nyack Family Clinic that watched Judge McVeigh take a 12-year-old boy and put him back into an abusive home where the, where the young boy committed suicide rather than live where Judge McVeigh sent him back to. I don't understand what happens to a judge or opposing attorneys when you present this stuff in such a way that says, Mary has been neglected before she ever got to care one. That wound did not develop in KO one, and you tried to hide it. You tried to conceal it. You deprived Mary of medical care. She had blocked arteries, and you did nothing. You smoked in front of her day in and day out, and you gave her a smoker's cough at 99 and a half years old. And when Mary got to a hospital, you tried to conceal it, and Care One got in on it because Care One realized that the medical proxy was defective and that they had violated the relationship between a mother and a daughter. And then now you put her in this house over here and you can't get a judge to see the light of day. Why would you not put Mary back in Care One until the case runs out? Why would you not put Mary back in her own home until the case runs out? Because this judge doesn't want to make a decision. This judge is enamored by the personalities on the other side. And by God in heaven, if we ever find this judge is on the take, we are going to howl to the federal, to the U.S. attorneys. We are going to bury this, this nonsense that's going on around here because this is not the first time. This goes on over and again, and there's something very wrong here. There's, you know, well, the law of the average one of the says, things. One of the things I discovered in all of this, Stuart, in digging around when I first got involved in this, um, is that um, uh, the probate court gets a percentage of the value of the victim's estate right off the bat. Uh, mm. it, out on the West Coast, I think it's around 2 to 3%. Uh, as you move further east, the, the average tends to be around 6 to 9%. Then there is the Unifund down in Texas, which is part of Wells Fargo Banking, who also is um, integral in many of these cases. They facilitate the moving of funds out of trust funds into bogus uh, charity funds that don't exist. They provide um, uh, EIN numbers that are bogus, and this has all been reported to the IRS. Nobody does anything. It's Wells Fargo. But it, they facilitate a huge transfer of funds and property uh, away from the victim and into the accounts of these predators. And Wells Fargo is one of them. Also, Bank America is pretty handy at this, too, but Wells Fargo seems to lead the pack. But you've got Unifund, if you check that, down there it's based out of Texas. And what it is is a, a logging of um, securities accounts in the name of the, the court that they come from. It's held under the judge's name. And now they invest all that money, like all the money the court is is generated, uh, like through probate, uh, all that money is sent to this fund. And they invest it and hold securities, but the judge gets, as near as I can tell, and I might be wrong, but I don't think I am, uh, gets the interest off of this. And so it's it's monetarily, financially to their benefit 
to keep these cases going as long as they can because uh, they get to tap it again repeatedly as these payrolling attorneys do. The judge also gets to tap that estate, but most people don't know about that. And, of course, they issue it under the um, to benefit the ward. Uh, it should just say to benefit the judge for being corrupt, but it doesn't. And um, But, yeah, check out that Unifund. Uh, that's, well, that's quite revealing. You, you mentioned an EIN number. Vinnie Versace at uh, Spectrum Geriatric Care dropkicked Barbara with this uh, $12,000 bill. There are four siblings. Barbara feels her share of that bill should only be 25% anyway. Judge McVeigh hasn't ruled on that. Judge McVeigh says pay her her money in full, you know, and, and we'll settle these accounts later. We don't trust Judge McVeigh. We just don't trust her. So in the meantime, we... Well, why not? (laughs) Because we sat before her. (laughs) And we, you know what? We go to the Internet and we've read up. And and we say where there's smoke, there's fire. And, and you know, that's my my view and I'm sticking to it. But uh, we turned to Versace at one point. We... uh, I filed a a complaint with Consumers Affairs here in New Jersey against Versace, and we made her a good-faith offer of 5900 bucks, which she refused. And what we told the arbitrator was uh, Mike Smith with the uh, Patterson Office of the uh, Attorney General's Consumers Affairs. And we told him, we said, look, this lady lays out a $12,000 demand. First of all, if it's over 10000 it's reportable to the IRS as a transaction. And there are certain forms to be filled out for that. The other thing is, uh, there's a 1099 filing for something like that. She won't give us her Social Security number. You know, we 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 would like that for our records. And we asked for the EIN number, employer employer identification number. Any Versace Spectrum Geriatrics won't even produce that. You know, the lawyers asked for it. Joe Mecca has asked for it numerous times, and she won't do it. Uh, so when you mention um, EIN call, numbers, there, there's something. Yeah, call the IRS and give them that number and ask them who it belongs to. We don't have the number. She's never you don't have any of it. All right, yeah. then call them, Stuart, and give them the names and say there's a, apparently an EIN number associated with this. Can you tell me what it is? That's public yeah. information. Yeah, we're on a hunt for it, believe me. We're on the hunt for it. And when it comes to public information, uh, let me tell you what. Let me tell you what I stumbled across. Mary Ann Sudebar Merkel runs this daycare center, this 501c3 in Patterson, the coordinated community child care center. Somebody googled her name, came back with a newspaper article by a Mr. Lippman that wrote this uh, May of last year. Here in New Jersey, we got this freewheeling Governor Christie who's going to put all those teachers in their place by cutting back on all this money they ask for through their unions. And part of his uh, cost-cutting efforts, he's decided to limit what 501c3 CEOs can earn, Uh, you know, what the state share paying them is. Who do you think the number one highest CEO of a 501c3, according to Mr. Lippman of the Record newspaper, is Marianne Sudabar Merko herself. 
He wrote an article oh we weren't aware of until just a few weeks ago. Her salary is 170000 a year. How much do you well, think Mr. Lippman said she earned in perks? $184,000. So oh, she's knocking God. down on the way to four hundred grand a year while the President of the United States makes what? I think and this is a little daycare down in Patterson, right? Do you know that the mayor of Patterson went before the New Jersey Assembly Budget Committee a few weeks ago, which I just happened to pop in on because it was close to where we live, and he told the Budget Committee that in Patterson he has to lay off one-third of the cops, emergency firefighters and EMTs and all these other city employees because he can't afford to keep them on the payroll, a third. And he has to raise the taxes in Patterson by 29%. And I'm not sure if that's a push or if he lost ground. You know, when you lose a third and you're raising the taxes by a third. It sounds like a push, but I think we're losing. But uh, well, the, the biggest, com- the the thing biggest is- complaint was he's got $11 billion in 501c3s that pay no taxes in his city of Patterson mm-hmm. while the place tanks. Right. Well, and what none of these, we've run into that here in Minnesota and, of course, Wisconsin, everybody's been aware of uh, the union busting going on there. And this is a, um, it, this is the Republican Party. This is their steamrolling. They're doing this also in natural health care therapies. They're launching bills in every state to outlaw it unless you buy a license and get registered and they approve you. And it's to get Codex Alimentarius in. But what none of these states in which just got exposed here in the Midwest is Minnesota and Wisconsin that was screaming about this terrible uh, financial shortfall. They have what are called CAFR, C-A-F-R, accounts. And this is the investments the state has made or is holding in funds or whatever they have done. And it turns out they have got cabillions of dollars, but they want to raise taxes. And so they they rig the reports, uh, the, the budget and the financial report for the state, and they never list these CAFR accounts. And there was just a big expose out here about that. And uh, Wisconsin, which was supposed to have had a $150 million shortfall, actually turns out to be about $125 million to the good. So uh, I'd be checking on that there in New Jersey also. Of course, that state has always got a history of corruption on every level, doesn't it? Oh I mean, my it's God. like New York. Every day yeah. there's another corruption scandal of some other public official. I, you wouldn't believe what you read here. I, I, I cannot begin to tell you. To hell with the Sopranos TV show, you know, this, you know, life is just, you know, overwhelmingly. Let, let me tell you something about Republican, uh, you know, uh, governance here. Somebody sent me this thing that said the Four C's address was just a mile from where I'm sitting right now. Patterson is, you know, ten miles away, but the local address for Four C's is just down the just down the highway. So I went down to the building. That, that it was at. It's a, uh, it's about a four-story, you know, office building. It's really nice. There's twin buildings there. And I go inside and I, I look on the, uh, on the wall for who's in the building. Four C's is not there. It's just not there. You know who is there? The Republican oh. Assemblyman Scott Rumana. And next oh door my. to the Assemblyman's office is Scott 
Romana's law office. Paul Scott Romana's got to do is walk back and forth between the two offices, and that's where Four C's is listed as their address. So I'm making the assumption that because Scott Romana is from Wayne, Marianne Mirko is raised in Wayne, um, and he has a law firm in Wayne, that Four C's is his client. Okay? Now, the Republican oh, Governor so Christie is – it gets ugly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, you know walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's, it's probably New duck. Jersey. <laughs> it's probably New Jersey. So this is what we're up against, folks, and uh, we're not alone. You know, we're talking to a half a dozen people who are calling themselves victims of McVeigh right now. We're trying to figure out where we go next. Um, all we really care about is seeing Mary again, getting Mary into a, a better environment than we think that she's living in. Um, and we await Judge McVeigh's decision that some people say to us she will not make because she's counting on Mary dying first. And that's one yeah. hell of a state of affairs, don't you think? Yeah, and and unfortunately it's a state that it seems to be in every state of the union. We're we're about out of time here, Stuart. This has just been a great interview. Uh, you're a great speaker. And um, I, I want to thank you for coming on. If anybody's got any information about this judge in New Jersey, get it to us. We'll put it up. I, I'm way past the point of worrying about who's going to come after me. Um, Good for and you. by the way, for anyone listening out there, those people sending me the emails, you know, telling me that somebody ought to put a bullet in my head and blah, 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 bite me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll uh, uh, close this down for now, Stuart, and we will be touching base with you again to update on Mary's condition and, and what's happening with you. And, and again, thank you for coming on. This was just a tremendous interview, and um, we will be back welcome. next week, um, as, and next week as, we – go ahead, Stuart. As we used to say in Vietnam, I'll see you up ahead. <laughs> it's a good way to, way to be, too. Um, this next week we have got Bobby Schindler coming on. He'll only be coming on for an hour. This is Terry Schiavo, if you may remember her from some years ago when they – um, starved this woman to death um, who was incapacitated. Uh, this is her brother, and he's coming on to, to to talk about what he and his group are doing to fight guardianship abuse, which is what this case was also, um, and to talk about what we maybe possibly can do here in the future uh, to stop this steamroller that's that's moving across the country. Uh, thank you for every everyone who tuned in tonight. We had a just a super huge audience, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, we'll be back tomorrow night on our regular show with Percy Smizer, the man who fought one against Monsanto, and um, so that should be really great. And the next week, um, the night after Bobby's on, the Truth About Gardasil group will be back on. These are the parents of uh, girls who have been harmed or killed by the Gardasil vaccine, and also Corey Shore. Um, he's a boy that's 14 years old that put out the song Crying for America that went viral, and the Huffington Post called it the attack of the party parents. Anyway, we're going to be talking to young Corey Shore uh, for a half hour 
this next week also. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, like I say we had a very large audience tonight. I'm, I'm grateful that people are listening in. We'll talk to you all next week. And, Stuart, again, thank you. We'll be checking in with you. Good night, everybody. Bye. Life is full of things that don't make sense, like, say, sweater vests. I mean, if the point of a sweater is to keep you warm, why lop off the arms? But for every nonsensical thing in life, it's good to know there are things that always make sense. Like enrolling with UW Whitewater Online. Whether you're a first-time student or a busy professional looking to advance your career, we offer over 50 in-demand certificates, bachelor's, and master's programs, all designed to get you wherever you're destined to go. Learn more at uww.edu online. The holidays start here at Pick and Save with a variety of options to celebrate traditions old and new. You could do a classic herb roasted turkey or spice it up and make turkey tacos. Serve up a go-to shrimp cocktail or use Simple Truth wild-caught shrimp for your first Cajun risotto. Make creamy mac and cheese or a spinach artichoke fondue from our selection of Murray's cheese. No matter how you shop, Pick and Save has all the freshest ingredients to embrace all your holiday traditions. Pick and Save, fresh for everyone. We all know a guy who only occasionally shaves for big occasions, and it's because that occasional shave really hurts. It's the time of year for big occasions, and yet there he is, suffering with that cheap drugstore razor. Let's help him out. Henson Shaving's line of razors, built with aerospace precision, deliver a smooth shave your dad, brother, and even son can enjoy, eventually. With replacement blades just 10 cents each, you'll buy it once, and they'll use it for life. How's that for the perfect gift? Celebrate with 100 free blades on your first purchase, and no subscription headaches. HensonShaving.com holiday ah feel the whoa with listerine at bj's you can save two dollars and fifty cents now on listerine products like total care anti-cavity fluoride fresh mint mouthwash or cool mint pocket packs fresh breath strips at your nearest bj's location experience the feeling of a million germs zapped in seconds with listerine discount available through december 24th save now only at bj's 